Okay, we'll start in just a couple minutes if you want to find the seat. This morning we're going to look at worldviews. What you believe about the world, about reality, does matter. I have some younger siblings who are aspiring to be filmmakers and they have a YouTube channel called Josty Flicks. I want you to write this down because they do some terrific stuff. They're comedy sketches. Josty Flicks, J-O-S-T-I-E. F-L-I-C-K-S. You can go to youtube.com slash or you can just go to YouTube and do a, a search on Flix. Their last one was uh, a short comedy sketch illustrating the importance of what we believe. It's called It Matters. So that's one of your assignments when you get high-speed internet is look up Flix. It Matters. What? <laughs> it's not going to be on the test. Okay, does anybody here want to venture a, a definition of what a worldview is? The view the world has about Okay, a worldview is a set of basic assumptions you have about the world, and you will interpret the world through those assumptions. There'll be assumptions about who God is. Your worldview starts with how you see God. Do you see God as non-existent? Do you see God as personal? By personal, I mean someone who has a will, someone who has an intelligence, someone who has the power of choice. Or do you see God in the Star Wars ways as just a, a force? an impersonal force like electricity or something. Also, another question worldviews deal with is ultimate reality. What is ultimate reality? Are we just part of some God's dream? Is reality just an illusion? Like, how many of you have seen The Matrix? You know, where it's just, is that reality is? Maybe we are just in a vat and all of this data that we feel is just sensory someone programming our brains. What is reality? Is reality just the material realm? Or is, does reality also have an immaterial, invisible realm to it? Origins. Where did we come from? Are we the product of a creator? Are we part of mass that has always been existed? that has always existed and is being forced by different, being shaped by different gods? Are we the product of a creator or are we the product of random chance? Are we just a cosmic accident? Are we simply realigned sludge? Man, what, what is our nature? Are we just an evolved animal? Are we a, a sleeping god who's forgotten who we are? Are we basically good? Are we basically evil? 
knowledge. Can we know the truth? Can we even know objective absolute truth? Or are we so limited by our perceptions and our point of view that we can't even know, make absolute claims? Meaning, what's the purpose of life? Is there objective purpose? Are we just free to make up whatever we want? I read a story about a man who climbed and very difficult trek up to Tibet and he made it to the top of the mountain bloody and he asked the guru up there, what's the meaning of life? And the guru said, a teacup. The guy said, what? I climbed all the way up here to find out the meaning of life was a teacup? He said, so maybe it isn't a teacup. <laughs> Morality. <laughs> Who decides what is right and wrong? Is that up to the, the individual? Is that up to the society? These are all basic worldview questions. Another way you can classify a worldview, this is from Chuck Colson and Nancy Piercy's books, you can classify a worldview based on three questions, three issues, how they deal with three issues. Creation, where we came from, the fall, what went wrong, and redemption, what can we do to fix it? So when you're asking someone, it's a great conversation starter. When you want to see where they are on their spiritual journey, what their view of life is, ask them those questions. Where did we come from? That'll give you an idea of their view of reality. And ask them what went wrong. Because almost every worldview acknowledges that something is wrong with this world. Nobody admits that or thinks that this is just the way it should be. And lots of different answers will be given. Some people think our problem is lack of education. Some people think our problem is that we have guilt complexes. Some people think that, like Freud, that our sexual desires are repressed by fundamentalist morality and if we could just get rid of guilt, if we could just give free expression to our impulses, the world would be all right again. So, creation, where did we come from, fall, what went wrong, and redemption, what will we do to fix it? Simple way to classify a worldview. For next little while, I want to talk about the difference between a subjective truth and an objective truth. Because something you're going to encounter a lot today in a postmodern society is, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. How do you respond to that? First of all, you need to make a distinction between objective truth and subjective truth. Pistachio peanut butter ice cream tastes delicious. Is that true for you? I don't even think it's true for me. <laughs> Country music sounds awesome. That's true for me. Is there anybody here where it's not true for? Okay, so that truth is relative, right? It may be true for you, it's not true for me. You know why that's a, relati a subjective, relative truth claim? Is because it's not really a claim about country music. It's a claim about the person who is... It's a, it's a claim based on taste. Now, to say pistachio ice cream tastes wonderful is a subjective truth claim. To say pistachio ice cream cures diabetes is an objective truth claim. Because it's making a claim not just about the person who's... I've in their taste, it's making a claim about reality. 
Now the question is, is a, is a religious worldview claim an objective claim or a subjective claim? Because a lot of people think that your religion is a subjective claim just according to taste. That if Jesus helps you, he can be true for you. If Jesus helps you overcome your guilt complex, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. What's true for me is a belief in Allah. It's a belief in there is no God. It's a belief in witchcraft. It's a belief in Satanism. People think religion is a subjective truth claim. And this is why they get offended when you try to proselytize. Because if I got militant against you trying to prove that country music is true and right for everyone, you would be offended because I'm trying to impose my tastes on you. And if that's what people perceive our evangelism to be, us just forcing our tastes on someone else, they're going to be offended. So we need to move to let people know that we're not just making subjective claims about our tastes. We're trying to make, we're trying to figure out what is really true out there. See, for me, I tell people, I'm not interested in just religion. I'm interested in reality. I don't want a belief that just makes me happy. I want to know what is real out there. I it doesn't matter if a belief in a flat earth makes me happy. I want to know, is the world flat or is it round? I want to know reality. <coughs> Why should we care about the truth? Shouldn't we just want whatever makes us happy? Well, as a Christian, I've got a very compelling reason for why we should care about the truth. Because in the Christian worldview, and I do believe this is the correct view of reality, there are two forces at work, two powers. One is God, who is the creator of reality, who at the heart of true reality, at the heart of truth, is a good and loving God who has our best at heart, who wants what's best for us. But there is also the father of lies, another power, Satan, who is the master at creating counterfeit false realities. And at the heart of the counterfeit false reality is someone who hates us with a holy passion, someone who can't stand us because we're made in the image of God, someone who drinks deeply of human misery and despair. So do you see that anytime you are embracing a false reality, when you're accepting a lie about the world, you are moving closer to the realm of someone who wants to see you miserable, who wants to destroy you. Anytime you move closer to the truth, even if it's a difficult truth to swallow, you're moving closer to the heart of reality and a good God who wants what's best for you. To me, that seems like a pretty compelling reason to want truth over happiness. Because Ultimately, it's only truth that will lead to happiness. So why do we need to care about a person's worldview in evangelism? Why am I including that in this class? Because before we can use the gospel message to people, we have to make sure that they have accepted a worldview that is compatible with our message. And you see this with the apostles. When they evangelized to the Jews, the Jews already had a, a worldview that made sense of things like sin and forgiveness. They had a personal God in their worldview. So they could just jump right into gospel terminology. But when you look at Paul speaking to the Greeks on 
in Acts chapter, I think it's 17 or 18, he starts by attacking the worldview. He starts by establishing a Christian worldview. Before, think, before concepts like sin, morality, and forgiveness will make any sense, accountability to a God, you have to have a framework that says, yes, there is a God who created us, and there's a God who cares about us. Paul says that one of their jobs as an ambassador is to tear down the false ideas that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. See, the Christian message of forgiveness and reconciliation to God will not work with a pantheistic worldview, will not make sense to someone who has a pantheistic worldview or an atheistic worldview or a polytheistic worldview. None of that will make sense. So what we're, later, later on, I'm going to get into how to test a worldview, how to use questions to first discern a worldview and also poke holes in a false worldview. But first of all, I want to just briefly go over what the Christian worldview is. Excuse me if this is basic stuff, but there's a lot of kids who grow up in Christian homes who think they're saved, but they don't have a Christian view of reality. They have this confidence that they have a ticket, they have a confidence that they have asked Jesus into their heart, but they don't see reality the way it really is. They've adopted lies. So this is the Christian worldview. First of all, God is a self-existent, personal, all-powerful, all-good God who cares deeply about us and who created us with the ability to communicate. This God has the ability to communicate with us. Ultimate reality is a good God, but there's also the spirit realm of evil and demons, and there's the immaterial side of us, there's a soul, there's the part of us that will continue to live forever. Origins. Now this is where our thinking gets clouded, because a lot of us have bought into evolutionary worldviews, even though we claim to believe in a creator. But every nature t show or book you read or movie you watch accepts a secular or atheistic view of the world. And so it's so easy to, to start buying into these ideas that nature is just random chance. But as a Christian, you see that God created everything and God does not create things randomly. He creates things for a purpose. Do you realize what, how it, that should change our view of the world, that every tree, mountain, river, ocean, is not just a fluke of nature happening that way, but it was created by a good God who is using nature to communicate with us. God has created two books, the theologians say. There's the book of the Bible where he teaches us certain things about salvation and about his forgiveness and love, but God also created the book of nature. And it, nature is God's revelation to us. We should have a love for nature and for the outdoors and for the human body and things. What does this reveal to us about our Creator? Man, we looked at this before, man is very noble and man is very corrupt because we're creating the image of God but we're in rebellion. Knowledge. <laughs> I, um, I have a love for philosophy and some of these concepts are so fascinating but they can also really turn people off. Some of you are going to thrive on the philosophical aspects of this class and some of you are going to get a headache. Some of you are in between. But I really want to attempt to help you guys get some of this. Because 
Here's why. I believe that only in the Christian worldview do things like logic and knowledge, the reliability of sense perception and morality, only in the Christian worldview do these things make sense, do these things have a foundation. Uh, I'm going to start with morality because this is a little easier to grasp. Think about where morality comes from. First of all, ask the question, is there moral obligation in the world? Are we obligated to do some things and abstain from some other things? Almost everybody acknowledges this. Some people will deny it with their actions. They'll say, I am free to do whatever I want. But everyone acknowledges this moral law with their reactions. So the psychopath who thinks it's fine to steal every people's, other people's iPods will get upset when you steal his iPod because he recognizes that stealing is wrong. Even though he has a seared conscience, he will still say stealing is wrong. You can ask your friends, is anything objectively wrong? Or just one thing, like is it wrong to torture babies for fun on holidays? Yeah. Absolutely. I cannot think of any relativistic society that would say, yeah, it's fine to torture babies for fun on holidays. But see, if there is really moral obligation in this world, if some things are truly wrong and truly right, where does this moral obligation come from? There's only four options. One, it comes from beneath us, an evolutionary impulse. But the question is, are we obligated to do what nature programs us to do? If a man is programmed, okay, I'm going to speak not in terms of a Christian worldview, but as if evolutionary is terms. So I'm going to use evolutionary, we're going to try on the evolutionary worldview to see if this makes sense of morality. I mean, if evolution makes you stinky, is it immoral to put on deodorant? No. If evolution makes a man want to rape a woman, is he just allowed to rape us, to rape someone? No. So this evolutionary impulse can't come from beneath us because nothing, morality cannot come from chance. If I had a scrabble, bunch of scrabble pieces here, threw them on the ground, and they said, eat dogs, would you feel any moral obligation to go eat a dog? No, because that was just a random chance thing. Morality cannot come from blind chance. It simply can't. We're under no obligation to believe that. Does this moral obligation come from inside of us? No, because we're not bound to obey what we decide to do. We're free to change our minds. Does this moral obligation come from a collection of equals, which is society? And this is the highest form of morality that an atheist has to point to, society. But in that case, how can you ever have an immoral society? If Hitler had won World War II, and he had propagated this idea that Jews are lower forms of human life that should be eradicated, would that be our standard of morality? No. Here's another problem. If society is the measure of morality, then anybody who tries to reform society is 
by definition of that morality, immoral. So someone like Martin Luther King Jr., who was trying to change society's view that blacks were inferior, would be immoral because he was going against society. See, there has to be a standard above society that gives us this moral obligation. But where does that come from in an atheistic worldview? Because everything in, a, in an atheistic worldview is a, is a closed system, a closed box. Can anything, if this bottle is nature, can anything that be going on there be considered unnatural? Because nature is just following the course of nature. See, in an atheistic worldview, there's no standard to give it. Now, some atheists have tried to say, well, there are, it's just part of the moral fabric of the universe. There are some things that are right and there's some things that are wrong. But there's no thing to enforce them. Why should we be obligated to do justly, to self-sacrifice ourselves, if there's nothing out there? Do you get this, that in an atheistic worldview, matter is all there is, Billions of years ago, there was an explosion. We are a fluke accident, and we are going to slip into oblivion, and in another few billion years, this universe will have never remembered that we were even here. That's a bleak view of reality, but that's what the atheist has. Now, an atheist will say, I have morality. I don't believe in God. I have morality. He's missing the point. Yes, he has morality because he lives in God's world where there is a more moral system. Just like someone who says, well, I don't believe in a brain. I can still think. It doesn't matter what you believe in. It's a question of, do you have a brain or not? So it doesn't matter if you believe in a God. That's not what gives you the moral sense of obligation. The question is, is there real moral obligation in the world? And the, uh, uh, the overwhelming answer of humanity by the way people react is that yes, there is objective morality. But the thing is, this has to come from a person. It has to come, only a person can decide. We have no moral obligation to electricity. All electricity, we're free to shape any way we want. And you know, this is what is so popular about New Age religions. Because it gives us a sense of the divine a sense of the supernatural without moral obligation. Because the New Age message is that you are free to tap into this force, into the powers, and mold reality toward your tastes. It comes back to that basic lie. You can be God, you can be in control. But see, in a Christian worldview, we're not free to make up, we're not free to make up reality as we go. We are accountable to a person who gave us moral laws and says, someday you're going to stand before me and give an account with how you lived your life. That was quite a spiel, but do you get that? And it's fine if you don't get this. It may take several trips through this. Not for me, thankfully, but from getting this. But I want you to grasp that basic point. Because this is just an, an illustration of how the Christian worldview makes sense of the pieces of reality where other worldviews don't. Other, another example of worldviews is each worldview tries to give us the box top for a puzzle pieces. Each of us see individual particular things about life 
and our worldview is like the box top that tries to make sense of the, this. Now, if you had three different box tops up here to choose from, and I had a bunch of puzzle pieces on the table, and you're looking at these pieces, and you see orange pieces, green pieces, and blue pieces, and red pieces. One of these box top is, is just solid blue ocean. You can be pretty confident that that's not the bo correct box top for these puzzle pieces because it doesn't line up with the particulars. If you see a box top, and only one of these box tops has all the necessary colors that we see there, we go, that must be the correct one. And so in the same way, we see, uh, we're trying to make sense of some, the data, the particulars we experience. But what worldview makes sense of those? And I think it's clear that only, Christ, only the Christian worldview, only the belief that there is a, an eternal, self-existent, absolute person, God, makes sense of things like morality, and actually even things like logic. Okay, here we go again. <laughs> why, would, why should we trust our brains? Why should we even have concepts of true or false if we're the product of blind random chance? Do you recognize that if someone has an experience with UFOs and it can be proven that he was on drugs the night before, we say that's an invalid testimony because it was a chemically induced reaction. In an atheist worldview, every one of our thoughts are just chemical reactions to the data. We don't even have... You guys with me? Okay. We don't even have, in an atheist worldview, the equipment to choose between a true idea and a false idea. Do you get that? If our brains are just computers, computers don't ever wrestle with the question of whether an idea is true or false. Computers just believe whatever is programmed into them. If our brains are just material computers, we're just getting imprinted by a bunch of complex things, by what I'm telling you, what your parents told you, by what you're getting, what's getting programmed into you, and we're just passively believing whatever we choose to believe. And the idea of true and false gets murdered in an atheistic worldview, regardless of how much an atheist wants to talk about what's true and false. Uh, we'll, we'll maybe get into that a little, a little further. But my main point here is that the Christian worldview is the only worldview that really makes sense of things like meaning and morality. What kind of objective meaning can there be in a secular worldview? You know, it's called, there's a worldview called nihilism. Friedrich Nietzsche was one of the proponents of that. And the nihilistic worldview says there is no meaning to life. Because he understands that if if we're just a product, if we're just an accident, and eventually we're all going to slip back into oblivion, what we do doesn't really matter. You just should live selfishly, go for all the gospel, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, and nobody remembers. Other people came up with existentialism, which is another worldview, which says, you choose your own meaning. 
the very act of choice. Somehow, we don't understand it, but somehow we have the act of choice. So when you are choosing your morality, there is something beautiful and worthwhile in the very fact that you're making choice. It doesn't matter if you choose to run over grandma or pick, over, pick up grandma and give her a ride. The important thing is that you chose. That's the existential worldview. So it, when you test a worldview, you can get Ronald Nash says there's three tests. The test of reason, does it contain contradictions? If it doesn't line up with, meet with its own standard, it can't be true. Does it match the test of experience and does it match the test of practice? I'm just going to quickly, because this is on the test, run over seven false worldviews. I actually only have six here, but... Atheism, which is the view that there is no God. See, what a person thinks about the possibility of miracles, where morality comes from, all of these things are dictated by a person's view of God. So in an atheistic worldview, miracles are impossible. Uh, David Hume's argument against miracles was that what's more likely that nature will go out of its course or that man will be deceived or man will lie. He said, we have tons of, of examples from our experience of humans being deceived and of humans lying, but we don't have any examples from our life of nature going out of its course. So David Hume thought that was an airtight argument against the possibility of miracles. He says, whenever you come across a miracle claim, what's more likely, that a miracle really happened or that somebody was deceived or that somebody lied? The problem with that argument is it adopts an atheistic worldview that before it even examines the evidence, says that miracles are impossible. But if you have a Christian worldview and you can acknowledge that there is a creator who created this world out of nothing, miracles are suddenly possible. And it completely changes the probability factor when you consider that there is a God who could do miracles. Deism is a belief that's kind of coming back into popularity. This was a lot of the founding fathers, your founding fathers, I'm Canadian, probably some of them are <laughs> too, were deists. Deism is kind of a cool religion because you have an intelligent designer, so you ha you're mentally satisfied with where this world come fr came from, but this God doesn't care about our morality, doesn't interfere with us, so it's the best of both worlds. You get the, you get the God who created the world, but he's not going to interfere with your life. There's pantheism, which says that God is an impersonal force. Uh, to a pantheist, good and evil are simply illusions. And this is a reason people cannot really live out pantheism, is because deep down we know we hunger for goodness and we have a hatred for evil and when we hurt we can't just say it's an illusion. Even pantheists who believe that everything is an illusion look both ways before they cross the street. Panentheism is a view that says God is in all, it's kind of like the, the, the world, the material realm, is God's body, but there's an underlying force. I'll move through this quickly. Polytheism is the belief 
that there's many gods, Mormons would believe this, or Wiccans, or a lot of pagan cultures believe in many gods. And finite godism, which the, the view of a, a Jewish rabbi, Harold Kushner, who, who just believes that there is a glorified being out there, but he's not really all-powerful. Finite godism really doesn't make sense of, of where this god comes from. In fact, a lot of atheistic arguments against the existence of God really would shoot down finite godism, but they wouldn't really shoot down the Christian god. Okay. Strategies for discerning and exposing a worldview. I want to give you some tactics. I don't know how much time I can really get into these. I urge you guys to look up Greg Kokel at str.com. Write that down. GregKokelSTR.com. Get the book, Tactics. It is an excellent, excellent book, Tactics by Greg Kokel. He has, I've taught this to my apologetic class. This is a tremendous book. It gives you some strategies for conversations that will buy you time and will help you stay confident, stay in control of the conversation, and really help expose a false worldview. Questions are terrific because if you are just preaching, people tune you out pretty quickly. Some of you are proof of that. But questions engage the mind and they keep the other person involved with the conversation. So questions also honor that person's dignity. Questions, you really want to get the other person thinking. This is your, should be your goal in evangelism to get the person thinking. Greg Kokel calls it putting a rock in someone's shoe. You just want to, if you can leave them with a question that really has them scratching their head, that has them mulling it over, that you've been an effective witness, an effective ambassador. But if you just did all the time preaching, he's not going to go away actually really wrestling with what you say, most likely. The Holy Spirit, of course, can use that too. But he's going to... Hopefully, maybe you've just hardened him against that, and all he'll think about is how obnoxious you were, not the issues you raised. Okay, the Columbo tactic is terrific. It's three questions. Have you ever seen the Columbo show? It's, it was an old, it's a great mystery detective show. I think it was back in the late 70s, early 80s. Columbo made himself appear harmless, bumbling, inept, but he was smart like a fox, and he could ask these questions that seemed like random questions, but they exposed the criminal for who they were. The show would always start with us seeing who the criminal was, and the criminal thinking he got away with the crime, and Columbo using a series of questions to show, to pin the crime on this criminal. The first question in the Columbo tactic, and no matter what type of conversation you get into with an unbeliever, use these first to keep these two questions in the back of your mind before you say anything else. The first one is, what do you mean by that? If someone comes up with a slogan, that's true for you, not for, but not for me, or all morality is relative, or the Bible is full of contradictions, or there's no such thing as God. See, most of us Christians, when we hear that kind of accusation, are paralyzed. And then they come up with you, how can there be a good God when there's pain and evil in the world? Stop right there and ask, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by God? 
What do you mean by evil? What do you mean by suffering in the world? Just ask, what do you mean by that? You can, there's different ways to... What do you mean by morality? But the point is you're just asking, clarify your views for me. Before I address this, I really want to understand your objection. Can you clarify it? What do you mean by that? You know, sometimes just by asking, what do you mean by that, you're going to get that person thinking because there's a lot of mindless slogans that don't have any grounding in reality, but these people are adopting, they sound cool in conversation and they work and they've, they've picked them up in atheist chat rooms. They haven't really thought through whether they stand the test of reason. So just asking, what do you mean by that? The next question is, how did you come to that conclusion? Get them to offer support for what they're believing. It's called the burden of proof. The burden of proof says that the person making the claim has to offer the evidence for that claim. When you ask, how did you come to that conclusion? They're the one making the claim. So often an atheist or a skeptic, unbeliever, wants to make the claim, but then they want you <laughs> to be the one defending the other view when you haven't made the claim. Now, when you make the claim, you need to defend it. But when someone says the Bible is full of contradictions, ask, how did you come to that conclusion? Can you show me some of these contradictions? And I've heard it said over and over that when the people actually show you the contradictions, they're very easy to resolve. But how did you come to that conclusion? All morality is relative. How did you come to that conclusion? All religions are equal. What's your evidence for that? How did you come to that conclusion? It's so important that you ask these questions not in an antagonistic type of way. You really want to show genuine love and concern. How did you come to that conclusion? Then you can ask, can you clear this up for me? This is where you can show them the inconsistency in a person's worldview. So you shouldn't force your morality on others. You can ask for clarification. So you think you shouldn't be forcing, we shouldn't be forcing our morality on others. Yeah, that's right. Well, then why are you forcing your morality on me? You see, the person who says you shouldn't force your morality on others, that's a moral belief, and he's forcing it on you. He's not living up to his own standard. You Christians are intolerant, intolerant and arrogant. Ask for clarification, saying, I, wait, are you saying I'm intolerant and arrogant? because I think I'm right? Yeah. You can ask for clarification. So you think I'm wrong for believing in absolute truth, and you are right for rejecting absolute truth. Yeah. Then you can go in for the, the kill. So how come when you think you're right, you're just right, but when I think I'm right, I'm intolerant and arrogant? Okay. You can see example three there. The Bible is just myths and fables. How do you know that? Because the Bible contains miracles, and science has proven that miracles are impossible. You can ask the question, okay, science deals with repeatable natural occurrences. A miracle, by definition, is not a repeatable natural occurrence. So how could science disprove the existence of miracles? It couldn't. That's just your interpretation. So, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know how much of you 
young people have encountered this postmodern mindset, but some people really think that reality is just open to whatever interpretation we want to give it. And so when we make a claim, they just say, well, that's just your interpretation. <laughs> you can expose that pretty quickly by saying, well, so you're saying all interpretations are equal and valued. Well, my interpretation of what you just said is that you believe that you're a skinhead who thinks that all Jews and homosexuals should be burned. I didn't say that. Well, that's just my interpretation. Are some interpretations better than others? Obviously, he's going to have to accept that some interpretations are better than others. Okay. The suicide tactic. A lot of views self-refute. A self-refuting statement is one that doesn't even meet its own criteria. When it says, I, cannot, I can't speak a word in English, I've refuted that. It's, it's a self-contradictory statement. It's like if a person tries, if a person tries, is trying to fail and succeeds, what has he done? <laughs> did he fail or did he succeed? There's a t-shirt that says, the statement on the front of this shirt is true. And the one on the back says, the statement on the back of this no, the statement on the back of the shirt is true, and on the back it says the statement on the front of the shirt is false. Self-contradictory statements. But there's a lot of views that sound nice, but they self-destruct because they contain contradictions. All religious beliefs are true and valid. You can challenge someone that by saying, well, my religious belief is that you are going to hell for rejecting Christ. Is my religious belief valid and true? They're not going to want to accept that conclusion. They're going to have to go, okay, well, maybe some beliefs are true, some beliefs are false. So now we have to know which is which. You can only know what is proven by science. Well, what scientific experiment has proven that truth? David Hume made a sweeping, majestic statement in one of his books saying, anything that cannot be known by empirical testing and science is drivel and should be thrown to the flames. Well, he just made a statement that cannot be known through empirical testing and science, and his statement should have been thrown to the flames. There is no truth. Is that true? There are no absolutes. Are you absolutely sure? You see, these ideas, on the one hand, sound like they stump us, but they're just smoke screens. They're <laughs> Twinkie statements that can be rejected, shown that they're false. People say, you can't know objective truth. Well, you know what? By making that statement, you have to know an objective truth. You have to know something about reality. Someone who says, we can't know God is making a statement about God that is claiming, that's claiming tons of knowledge about God that says God can't be known. Someone... Okay, do you get that? That there's some statements that just don't live up to their own criteria. This is why this idea that all truth is relative does not work. Because some ideas are true and some ideas are false. To say that is not a true statement 
is to acknowledge that some ideas are false. You cannot deny the law of non-contradiction. You have to you cannot make a claim denying absolute truth without accepting and first using a belief in absolute truth. I apologize, some of that's kind of heady stuff, but the point is that these ideas do not line up with reality and you can use these tactics. Finally, the, the taking the roof off tactic. Francis Schaeffer talked about these in some of his books. He says, people shelter themselves with a false view of reality and this false view of reality soothes their conscience and they can ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit because they have this false view of reality. A loving Christian carefully and mercifully needs to remove that shelter, that structure, take the roof off, and let the harsh winds of reality blow on that person and make them recognize their need for a savior. This taking the roof off tactic just shows that some beliefs are not livable. The idea that all morality is relative is not livable. There's a story about a student who wrote an essay trying to prove that all morality was relative. He was as brilliant and convincing as possible. He gave it to his teacher and his teacher gave him an F. And the student was, was flabbergasted. What was wrong with that essay? This teacher said, you gave it to me in a blue binder. I don't like blue binders. And the student said, that is unfair. You didn't say anything in the test. That was wrong. <laughs> the teacher just pointed out, okay, well, maybe there's some, maybe morality is not relative. Maybe some things are wrong. The student couldn't even live by his own criteria. Someone who says all morality is relative, like I say, will get upset when he is wronged, when you try to steal. Um, someone who says that they were born gay, their argument is that, their belief is that whatever you are whatever you feel naturally must be right. Whatever comes to you naturally must be right. So you could <laughs> point out, tongue in cheek, well, I have these certain natural impulses and I've had them since birth. Are you saying that I should be free to follow them? Homosexual says, absolutely. Well, see, my natural impulse, the thing I want to do is every time I see a homosexual, I want to bash his brains in. Should I be free to follow my natural impulses? He's going to say no. Just because something is natural does not make it right. Just because someone is born with a homosexual desire, and that is still up for debate, but just because someone is born with a homosexual desire does not make the giving into that desire right any more than a man who's born with a normal sex drive and has a desire to rape a woman. That does not make that desire right. Civilization is what tells us to curb our natural instincts. When we are hungry, we don't just steal. When we're angry and want to kill someone, we don't just go kill someone. We curb our natural responses. There's a standard of morality that no matter what natural impulses we have, because we're fallen, we try to submit to. So do you see why that's a bad argument for the homosexual case? Just because they were born with desires 
does not make those desires right. You can show that some that is an unlivable belief. Morality is just a product of evolution. And this is an idea that you will find quite commonly that the sense of moral obligation is not really real. It's just that societies that had this sense of moral obligation propagated and survived while the ones that didn't have this died out. But see, think about what this evolutionary morality is giving us. Evolution says natural selection that the, the weak should be weaned out so that the stronger species can propagate. If that's the basis of morality, what was the basis of Hitler? What was the basis for calling what Hitler did wrong when he separated what he thought was the weak from the strong? Is it wrong for a, a farmer, if he's got a set of weak disease cows, to separate them so that his herd can be stronger? A person says, that's not a fair comparison. Well, ask him, on what basis do you have, what basis do you have for saying that humans are anything more than evolved animals? See, I have, as a Christian, I have an answer for that. Created in the image of God, and there is real moral obligation, and I have a creator that I am going to give, be accountable to. But in your atheistic worldview, what do you have to prove, point to, that shows that what Hitler did is any different than what a farmer did? Okay, here's another one. Uh, this uh, issue of abortion. A it's a woman's... A woman should be allowed to abort her unwanted baby. Um, you can, Greg Kokel has a tactic, he says, trot out the two-year-old. Do you have a two-year-old baby here? The mother, should this mother be allowed to kill this baby? Absolutely not. Well, why not? Because that, that, that human child has life. Randy Alcorn, who I, I hear has spoken here, wrote a terrific book, Pro-Life Answers to Pro-Life Questions. And he has said that when he's gone on to college campuses, I don't remember his exact wording, but he says something to the effect that, you know, I believe that it's a woman, a woman has a right to choose and the government should be staying out of the woman's bedroom, that whatever the woman decides to do, it's her body, she should be allowed to do whatever she wants with it. And the crowd roars. He says, yep, that's definitely my belief. And this is why I believe that it's also a man's body belongs to him and it's his right to do whatever he wants with his body and the government should stay out of that man's morality and that man's body. That's why I believe that rape should be legal because it's the man's body, he should be allowed to do whatever he wants with it. And all of a sudden, they're shocked and they're protesting. No, that, that can't be. Well, why is it wrong for a man to just have the freedom to rape a woman? Well, because it involves another human being. Well, what do you think abortion does? It murders another human being. It's not a livable belief that a woman should choose. What's the difference between that baby in the womb 
and the baby outside the womb. I get so infuriated at the stupidity, at this false distinction people have between a baby inside the womb has no rights, he moves six inches, and all of a sudden he has the full rights of humanhood. That does not make sense. In fact, there was a case where a doctor bungled an abortion and the baby came out alive, so he finished the abortion outside the womb and he was charged for murder. That is just insanity. You know, the whole question, is the baby human? Well, if someone says, I don't know, is that a good reason to kill it? <laughs> if, if your little kid comes to you and says, can I kill this? Your first question you need to ask, what is it? If it's a fly, yes. If it's his little sister, no. <laughs> if you're a hunter and you see the brush move, do you just shoot at it because you're not sure if it's a deer or a human? <laughs> no, you make sure it's, a, it's not a human. So someone who says, well, we don't really know when the fetus becomes a person, make them point out that's an argument against abortion, not an argument for abortion. The only three questions you need to ask is, is it human? Is it the product of, a hum of human conception? Is it alive and growing? Is it genetically its own individual? If that's the case, it's a human being full worthy of the protection of the law. So I didn't have time to really get into these tactics. I used some examples. Greg Kokel has tons more examples that, will, that covers almost every example, real life example you will face. Very worthwhile. But the point I want to make is that you can learn to use these tactics. And if you get nothing else from this session, keep those two questions in the back of your mind. What do you mean by that? And how do you come to that conclusion? Because I know what the heat of the battle's like and how quickly my first response is to start formulating a defense and not really listen. But just asking those questions. How did you, what do you mean by that? How do you come to that conclusion? Sometimes that's all you need to do. If you don't have answers at that point, maybe in the course of his explanation you'll see a self-contradiction or you'll see something that you can show is false. If you can't, just say, thank you for giving me your opinion. I'd like to do some research on this and get back to you. What do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? Very important. You can role play with these. And you know, every time you venture a conversation with an unbeliever, good is going to come from it. Even if the only good that comes from it is you learn something more about how to interact with people. I've had so many conversations with unbelievers and I kick myself after the conversation going, I wish I had said that, I wish I'd used in that strategy. But you know what, it was still beneficial for me. And I was able to review the conversation okay and said, when he said this, what should I have said in that situation? And it gives you an, opportuni an opportunity to learn for next time. The more you sweat in practice, the less you bleed in battle. So it's very valuable to learn these things. I strongly recommend that you go watch Josie Flicks, and I strongly recommend that you get Tactics by Greg Coco. Yes?
Yeah, that, that, is, that is definitely a good point. And what I'm saying is you should always reflect on this, the conversation. And in your reflecting, the Holy Spirit may convict you of hurting that person or something you said wrong that drove it away. And because you reflected on it and gave the Holy Spirit, you have the chance to go back to that person and apologize. And so don't let the fear of failure prevent you from having an interac interaction with someone. Because... Yes, absolutely. And I'm going to get into that in, a, in the ambassador's method. But the point is that we should not let a fear of failure prevent us from opening our mouth and starting a conversation. There's definitely guidelines that should checks and balances things you shouldn't do, and I appreciate that, that caution. But the point is that you should be free to have a messy conversation with an unbeliever. Because you'll learn from it, you can apologize for things later, you definitely want to be sensitive. But you just want to be sensitive to whatever God asks you to do. Most of the time God has given us the commission to go, and it's going to be the exception when he tells us to stay quiet. A lot of times he wants us to convict people, warn people, challenge people, question people. And this is what's so great about questions, is questions can be done in a non-offensive way that gets that person thinking. So does that, that help? Well, I appreciate that and we'll definitely get into that more in the next session. So thank you very much for your attention and for, some of, for bearing with me for some of that deep level philosophy. So. See you this afternoon.